Hi everyone, welcome to the Value Inspiration podcast. My name is Ton Dobber and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast this week is Hugo Spowers, chief engineer and founder of River Simple. I'm interested in the big picture because that's where I think the real breakthroughs lie. I set the company up to really make a step change in the environmental impact of personal transport. I assumed that the future for environmentally sustainable cars was better batteries and that requires big budgets, big labs, basic science, not my sort of field at all. And after about six months I found out about hydrogen fuel cells and I realized the breakthrough with hydrogen fuel cells was not through making better fuel cells. The breakthrough is in building a different sort of car. The car is designed very much for the business model. We will never sell, we're probably the only car company in the world that hopes never to sell a car. This is Hugo. He's an Oxford University trained engineer and entrepreneur. His first business was in motorsport, designing and building racing cars and restoring historic racing cars. He left motorsport for environmental reasons and set up Oscar Automotive in 2001 on the basis that a step change in automotive technology is both essential and possible. Hugo is responsible for all technical aspects of the cars and for the architecture of the business itself. He is considered a thought leader on the circular economy. At the Real Innovation Awards in October 2019, hosted by the London Business School, Hugo was awarded the George Bernard Shaw Unreasonable Person Award for someone who has shown enormous tenacity and stubbornness in pursuing on an idea despite the difficulties encountered along the way. Well, and this inspired me and hence I invited Hugo to my podcast. We explore what it takes to drive remarkable transformation in the market through technology and how it is possible to design a business that delivers environmental, social as well as financial returns without it being a conflict. By listening to this podcast, you will learn three things. Firstly, that the only advantage you have as a startup is a clean sheet of paper. So make the most out of that clean sheet of paper. Secondly, while remarkable companies are born by imagining a point far enough in the future and then backcast their strategy from that point, rather than forecasting their strategy from the point where they are at the moment. And thirdly, that changing one thing at a time is a catastrophic strategy. Changing everything at once reduces the risks and reduces the barriers. Hugo, thank you very much for making the time available today. You're a guest on my podcast. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a pleasure for me as well. And actually, you are, I wouldn't say strange, but at least a different type of guest on my podcast than I normally have. Because normally I interview tech entrepreneurs in the business software industry, because that's the area where I'm coming from, where I have my, my credentials. And this is like a slightly different one, but on the other hand, the tech entrepreneur spirit is absolutely there. Only things you're doing at the end, automotive industry. But I think there are so many different connections. And the reason why I invited you 
for the false cast in the, in the first place was a quote that I got I picked up on LinkedIn, and we're going to talk about it later on. But it said, "You never change things by fighting existing reality," and that's music to my ears. So let's talk about it later on. But before we start, if you would describe yourself in three words as a person or as a businessman, what would that be? I'm originally an engineer, of course, but we're doing goes far beyond engineering and it's probably the least important element. I suppose I'm a systems integrator. Systems integrator. But as a person, what characterizes you? As a person, what characterizes me? I'm very much more interested in the big picture than the detail. I'm still quite pedantic about detail, but I, I like to say that the devil may be in the detail, but God is in the system. So I'm interested in the big picture because that's where I think the real breakthroughs lie. I completely agree on that. It's going to be interesting. Good. Well, yeah, before we start, or we actually to get started, tell a little bit about what your company does, River Simple. We were set up, I'm originally a motorsport engineer. I set the company up to really make a step change in the environmental impact of personal transport. I got out of motor racing for environmental reasons and I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew it was going to be nothing to do with cars. And <laughs> after, after about only about six months, I assumed that the future for environmentally sustainable cars was better batteries. And that requires big budgets, big labs, basic science, not my sort of field at all. And after about six months, I found out about hydrogen fuel cells, and I'd never heard of them before. And yeah. I realized the breakthrough with hydrogen fuel cells was not through making better fuel cells, because they did exist by the time I got interested. The breakthrough is in building a different sort of car. And that system level integration is really what motorsport is all about. And as I got more stuck into it, I realized that the barriers weren't technical. They were to do with people and politics and business. So the same approach of whole system design, really reconfiguring the system, I started applying to the business strategies as much as I we were already doing to the vehicle technology. And then finally, the third level of whole system design that we've got involved in over the last 15 years is design at the level of purpose of the organization. And for me, that's design for sustainability as a philosophy throughout the business and the corporate governance to align all the interests of all the stakeholders over the mission of the company and to yeah. hold it true to purpose. But it does need a different kind of corporate structure than the conventional one, which owes a primary legal duty to maximizing shareholder value. Well, music to my ears. I mean, I saw that on your website indeed. We don't, we don't believe there needs to be a trade-off between a successful, profitable, resilient business and delivering on the aim to eliminate environmental impact. I think that says it all. Yes, absolutely. And I completely agree with you. I'm in the same boat. I mean, I think that success of a business comes when you're making an impact on your customers. You help your customers to make a difference. And once that is happening, the thing will come itself and the success will come your way. So I like that. I think that to just expand on that one, I think it's terribly important, Tom. And I think governance is not given proper consideration in our society today. I think it's so important. It is true, though, that... Whenever you ask a company that's a a successful company in its own right to to then deliver some additional environmental and social return, Mm -hmm. it is inevitably a cost on the bottom line because the business was designed to maximize profit. But if you design the business from the word go 
to deliver environmental and social return as well as financial. There's absolutely no reason why they should be in conflict. They should and they can enhance profitability. Yeah, now that's another thing that I got uh, that inspired me on your website. It says, turn sustainability from a cost on the bottom line into a competitive advantage, yeah. which is what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about the, the big idea behind yeah, what you're creating, because the end product at the end is a car, but I think there's a lot more around it, correct? Yes, and the car is designed very much for the business model. We will never sell, we're probably the only car company in the world that hopes never to sell a car. So <laughs> we, we will only ever sell a service contract rather like a mobile phone. And this is expressly not a lease. A lease is just a mechanism to enable people to lower the, the hurdle to buying a new yeah. car. And especially when there's a, an economic downturn, there's a rash of 0% finance deals to persuade people to keep on buying buying cars, we, even though there's very little upfront cost involved. And it's there to keep on maximizing the throughput of cars. In our case, we will only ever sell the service contract, and that's a fixed monthly figure, a direct debit, plus a mileage rate. So rather like a usage rate on a mobile phone. And that yeah. covers all your costs as a customer. It includes not just the maintenance, but the insurance, and most importantly, the fuel. When you fill up with hydrogen in one of our cars, you don't pay for it. We do. You do pay a mileage rate to cover. So the more you drive, the more you pay. But we actually pay for the fuel. And the two, from the business point of view, the two key characteristics that I feel defining characteristics of a truly circular business model are that the car has to stay on the same balance sheet, our balance sheet, from when we have a clean sheet of paper designing it right the way through to end of life, and we must internalize all the operating costs on that same profit and loss account. And if you do that, you build a completely different sort of car, because we're not building a product to sell, we're building a revenue generating asset that sits on our balance sheet. Yeah. And if we're doing that, the price to the customer isn't driven by the build cost of the car. It's driven by the lifetime cost of the car. Let me make a small interruption here. Hugo just pointed out something fundamental to creating defensible differentiation. The fact that they didn't create a product to sell, but a revenue generating asset that sits on their balance sheets, concentrates the focus to what's really important long-term, both for the business and for the customer. This is a trait remarkable tech companies master, and it's something that you can master as well. If you want to discover how and be inspired with more examples, I would recommend you to buy my book, The Remarkable Effect. You can find it on Amazon and any other portal where they sell books online. Back to the interview. And that includes not just the build cost, but all the operating costs and the end of life liability, which the industry regards as the 200 euro liability. But because we know it's going to be ours at end of life, we design it for maximum recovery of value. That's not just raw materials, but components that can be reused, refurbished and put in new cars. And also we design it to minimize the operating costs because we pay the operating costs. Whereas, and that means low maintenance and higher energy efficiency. Whereas the industry makes about 1500% markup on spare parts of cars. So, so the drivers are completely reversed, but also we want to maximize the length of that operating life because we're generating revenue for that entire life. And all those three things, value recovery, 
longer revenue stream, lower operating cost, can offset a higher build cost, which allows us to bring the product to market at the same price to the customer long before our supply chain costs are as cheap as those of petrol engines. Very interesting. In, how do you call it? Ingenuity? Or no, uh, it's... <laughs> well, I mean, what, what it tells me is that the model that you've chosen is providing you with the right incentive to drive the business, yes. where the traditional car industry, but I think it's easy to, to bridge that to other industries as well, actually yeah. in the software industry as well, that incentive, the incentive is, is the wrong one. I come from the business software industry and I've been in the age where everything was installed on premise. You were selling a license, just like you're typically selling a car. Yes. And now with software as a service, you know, the, the whole reliability, the risk has all turned to the vendor. And now you see all these vendors really scratching their head and say, you know, we have a problem. <laughs> right. The model that we, that we came from doesn't work anymore. It requires a completely different mindset. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, so with regards to yeah, the whole sustainability point and eliminating environmental impact, one of the things that triggered me as well was less unsustainable is still not sustainable. I think that is, that is saying something about the, uh, yeah, the car industry in itself. Yes, of course, all the, all the brands are now heavily promoting that they also have an electric car, but under the hood, it's still the same old car with a different, yeah, with maybe a battery tied to it, right? Yes. Nothing really changed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you, the misalignment of incentives is profound. I think that the, the change of business yeah. model is more important than any change in technology. Because if you sell cars, your interests are obsolescence and high running costs, which is the opposite of what the customer wants, but it's also the opposite of what the environment needs. And you're rewarded directly for maximizing resource consumption. Yeah, and sure. I don't see how we can ever have a sustainable industrial system based on rewarding industry for the opposite of what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, um, that's true. The only thing then left is regulation, but because we actually argue there's a disincentive to improve efficiency in cars, because if you sell cars, customers will, it costs more to make a more efficient car, but customers will never pay you a premium for a more efficient car. And, no. and consequently, it just reduces your profit margin. So that's a negative incentive. And the only thing then left is regulation. But because it reduces profit margin, the industry can logically and understandably only lobby against those regulations. And then inevitably, I'm afraid, cheat when the regulations come into force, as we've seen recently. So You've seen that, yeah. Big one. <laughs> we've got to align interests. And that, you've picked that out. It's a fundamental thread that runs through all our different business strategies. We're trying to align the interests, not just of ourselves with our customers, but also, as you can see, with the environmental needs, with regulators and policymakers, what they're after, and, and the inevitable regulations are going to come fixed with our business model, but also aligning our interests with our supply chain and all our infrastructure partners. We're consciously trying to align interests in every relationship we build. Yeah, because the, the, the incentive is there. Yeah. Now, one of the things that when he was still alive, Steve Jobs, he always said, you know, the innovation is not what you say. It's, what, it's not what you do, it's what you say no to. And I can imagine that on your journey in, in yeah, setting this up and creating this complete new model, you've had many of those type of decisions. Can you, can you, is there any example of that? <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, our progress has, has really been limited all the time by funds. We're considered very 
left field by investors and public sector grant funding bodies and you name it. So we're perceived as, as risky. And constantly we are challenged to not try and do so much so many things differently because we especially in the west the prudent thing to do is change one thing at a time and that's absolutely true if you're changing a relatively mature system but we argue that actually if you're going through a step change as we are both in technology and in the external constraints that we all face in business that changing one thing at a time is a catastrophic strategy Changing everything at once reduces the risks and reduces the barriers. And, really, okay. and it is very counterintuitive. So constantly we're asked, to, why don't you just make your car and worry about all your other fancy ideas later? The trouble is, if you just do that, it's much, much more difficult to make a business case. Paradoxically, taking, changing everything at once reduces all the risks. And, and it's easy to illustrate why, really. Whenever... <laughs> a new idea comes up in conversation, all the conversation goes like a lightning rod to the reasons why it can't be done. And I accept generally those reasons are true. They're correct. But they assume that the context within which the idea operates remains the same. The trouble is the context Uh within which the idea operates co-evolved with the old idea. And it's all those connections, all that pattern of relationships around the old idea that mean that there are reasons why the new idea won't work. But if you're prepared to throw away the context and build a new pattern yeah. of relationships, new business model around the new idea, suddenly it looks an awful lot more attractive. But if you try and do that yeah, new idea in the old context, you're absolutely, you haven't got an earthly chance. I completely agree with that. With that, I've had a number of those entrepreneurs on the call, and you know, it's the argument: if you are an incumbent or you're a startup, I mean, if you're a startup and you would start with a clean sheet of paper, yeah, you don't yeah. need to deal with all the heritage, no, and uh, that's, that's a big advantage at the end. But you also need to think, be able to think that way. So. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and that's where your your quote came from: "You never change things by fighting existing reality." So you did start with a complete new sheet of paper and said, what could the world look like if we just took a different approach? Yes, well, that was Buckminster Fuller, and he was certainly had a visionary approach. And actually, I don't know if he used used the word, but we talk about backcasting, and it's certainly what he did. We've tried to imagine a point far enough in the future that we have a completely sustainable transport system and we've backcast our strategy from that point in the future rather than forecasting our strategy from where we are at the moment. And it avoids the point you raised just now that being less unsustainable is still not sustainable. If you forecast your way forwards, it's all too easy to invest in something that's less bad. But it can never be sustainable. It can be less bad, but it's never going to be sustainable, however much investment you put in. And that is a very unwise investment because you get to a dead end, which is bad because you you can't get to where you want to go, a completely sustainable system. And also you've got to write off all the investment you made in getting to the wrong place and start all over again. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you you backcast, like imagine the top of a tree, that's where you want to get to. And you backcast from that. You can't fail to get down to the roots of the tree, which is where we are at the present. Whereas the forecasting approach, you can easily go off on one of these branches and end up in a dead end. Correct, yeah. 
Yeah, and that's of course what's happening a lot. If you're in, then it's like, okay, we've got all this sunk cost and what do we do with that? And then it takes a real brave entrepreneur to say stop and, and start again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. So we've had to say no to a lot of conditional funding. Going back to your original question, okay. which is that we are happy. We really like what you're doing with the car, but we don't want you to do this, this, this and that. And we're not prepared on principle to drop any of these things because we think it weakens the, the, the company in the long run. And so we had to stick to our guns on a lot of things. Yeah. So it wasn't even a technology issue. It was, again, it was regulations. It was people. It was thinking. Corporate that, governance. I mean, yeah. we've got quite a few investors who've invested because of our corporate governance model. Not No interest in cars particularly, but it's the corporate governance that they recognize is a much better option for investors. But equally, the corporate governance is probably the most common reason why, why organizations have chosen not to invest uh, because <laughs> they expect to have control if they put lots of money in. And that, yeah. we believe, that concentration of control is what leads to Dieselgate and Deepwater Horizon and all these other disasters. Yeah. Well, it's not good for investors, so, apart from anything else. No, 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 no. But I mean, it, it requires at the end is the di different thinking. At some point in time, people will say, what have you ever done without it? And yeah. once you've got that point to that point, then you've done the right thing. Well, that's Butman's fullest quote all over again, isn't it? <laughs> uh, certainly, we would, like to, we would like people to copy our multi-stakeholder governance model. We call it a stakeholder guardian model. And we think that ultimately people will adopt this model because it builds a more profitable and a more resilient business. Is that something that you've published? No, we haven't published it, really. I'm, I'm working with a law firm at the moment on a case study because they have asked me, been asking me just this very question. Okay. Well, I mean, I keep an eye out for this. But where are you now in the journey? The cars are available right, right now. Not really, correct? no. We've been, we like to say that we're a 19-year-old pre-revenue startup. <laughs> uh, I've actually been working on this since 1999, set the company up in 2001. And yeah. we've been through four generations of vehicle. Well, the first three were pure research vehicles. And the one that we are, ones we're working on now is the first design for the public road. We've had a prototype running for three, nearly four years now. And we're, build, we're at the moment building a batch of very heavily revised vehicles that look the same, but we're yeah. building a production run of 20 of them, which are going into a beta test in South Wales. We put in a hydrogen filling station in a town called Abergavenny, and the 20 cars are going in there to paying customers, to individual retail customers, to car sharing clubs, and to five public sector bodies. And we want to work very closely with all these users and refine the customer proposition as well as the vehicle technology and package as we are developing the car through to volume production. These are still hand-built cars. It's a, it's a production run. They're all the same, but they're not yet suitable for, for mass production. We haven't yet got a mass production facility. But we believe yeah, what, what, by doing this with our customers, we'll end up with a much better product and a better customer proposition in yeah. two years' time. Yeah, what interests me, now that you're saying that you've been working on it for quite a while, of course, things have happened as well. I mean, we're now talking at the end also about this whole hype around self-driving cars. I've had... Someone from, from Canada on the call, which was, was an expert in smart cities. And I mean, he made calculations out there as well. And of course, predictions into the future about what will happen when cars are shared. You also made a point about that. 
I think about half a minute ago. Yes. All those type of aspects part of the experience, or is that is that are these elements that you will add later or? Well, car sharing we think is an absolutely essential trend. We're really pleased it's happening. We don't believe actually the solution is everybody having shared cars. I mean, there are some people, particularly where we are out in the countryside, where shared cars don't really work so well. But we do need a business model that actually aligns with that trend. If you sell cars, car sharing is a pretty threatening trend because you just sell fewer cars. But in our case, we're not selling the cars, we're selling mileage. And so it's not surprising that coming from an environmental mindset, as the purpose of the company embedded in our legally in our structure, we end up with a business model that is compatible with necessary trends to reduce environmental unsustainability, such as car sharing. And we will design a car specifically for the car sharing community. It does require a different sort of car for billing systems and multiple access and so on. And the auto industry will never actually build a car for that niche because it's not really in their interest to encourage it. But we will tailor a car for that car sharing community. And you're um, almost there. Because it's, yes, I mean, it's a good business case for us. And at the moment, they have to spend about £1,500 retrofitting technology to make a car suitable for car sharing. Yeah, I mean, at the end, it's the, the more mileage the car does, the better it is for the, yeah, the rewards that you get from the car. You Absolutely. have to build it once, and then you get all the revenues from there. Absolutely, yes. Exactly. So from all the learnings that you've done so far, technology-wise or business-wise, what has been one that you say we should have done that differently? Or is that an, an, endless, an endless list? Mm. What, have you, what, yeah, what would you have done differently? What actually happened that, you, that set you up for success? Gosh, I don't know. We just It's hard to sometimes to answer a question like that. I, what have we done? I'm very pleased that we have, been, we have been able to stick to our principles. I do think that's put us in a much stronger position now. It, there's been some scary moments in the past 10 years where we've been under a lot of pressure to compromise. Yeah. But I think it's put us in a much stronger position now because we've done all the preparatory work over the last 20 years to really make the most of the wave of change that is beginning to happen now. And if we had compromised, we wouldn't be in nearly such a good position. I think there's a lot of the automotive world is scrambling to catch up with the pressures that we're all facing now, um, because they've been kicking the can down the road on, on the assumption that they could keep on delaying the legislation that would force them to do these things. And consequently, they haven't made the investments they should have made. Correct. Um, Yeah, I mean, yeah, I saw that that, uh, announcement. Yes. The announcement from the UK government that by 2035, which of course is 15 years down the road, fuel cars will be banned from from the British roads. Yes, absolutely. And I think it has been obvious for 20 years, this is going to happen. But the industry has preferred to stick to business as usual and keep on lobbying to delay regulations and EU fleet tailpipe mandates and things like that, rather than... And then so now a court with a, the cupboards bare with of any solutions that are going to address the problems we now face. That's why we have a rash of, of battery electric cars in the market today. It's, it's the 95 gram per kilometer fleet average that's come in. 
and yeah. there's a 95 euro fine per gram per car over that <laughs> limit and these fines are in the billions so if you make a zero emission car the super credit scheme allows you to count that as three cars in working out your fleet average so even if you make battery cars at a loss it still reduces the fines by more than the loss <laughs> and even though most of the industry is saying that hydrogen is the end game they're not producing hydrogen cars because they ha aren't ready. Toyota and Hyundai have been investing for 25 years, but most of them have really been not giving it the priority it needed. Yeah, we'll see what, how that will evolve. But again, it's the incentive that, that's wrong and it's to see what, what type of bands they could, yeah, you curve yourself in in order to yes. yeah, deliver something that just meets the new regulations for this year. But it's not, it's not sustainable. Yes. So yeah. let me see. I recently published my first book, which is called The Remarkable Effect. And it's a book that reveals the, the 10 traits of a remarkable software business or a remarkable tech business. Let's put it in those words right now. Yeah. If I ask you what you believe is required to deliver, to, yeah, to deliver a remarkable impact as a business, and you would give advice to other entrepreneurs that want to become one, what would it be? Gosh, I think we are so far from ideal design of companies that there are a bundle of things. I think I do urge people to think long and hard at a bigger picture level rather than trying to change one thing at a time. And especially as an entrepreneur, you have a cleaner sheet of paper than most people. Take the opportunity that, that the only advantage you have as a startup is that clean sheet of paper. There are no other advantages, I can assure you. And so make the most of that clean sheet of paper. Look at the big picture. Recognize the fact that the, the businesses of today forged in the 20th century, businesses are shaped by the business environment within which they work. True. And the principal constraints we face now are resource depletion and energy security and climate change and things like this. And these were not on the radar in the last century. And it's much easier to design a business model for the 21st century than to, to tweak a business model that was designed to do something fundamentally different. And, yeah. and so I think thinking long and hard about a real circular economy. And there's an awful lot of circular economy light, if you like, where people are sort of thinking recycling something is, is a circular economy model. It's not. Circular <laughs> economy goes far, far beyond that. And that feeding into corporate governance, I believe that... The, the primacy of shareholder value is one of the single biggest threats to the sustainability of business and businesses. And What do you mean with that? Well, the concentration of power in, I mean, we know dictatorships, one-party states yeah. can act quickly, but the concentration of power is, is an unhealthy way in the long run to run things. We recognize that democracies work better in the long run and are more resilient. And we need to take that thinking into the corporate world because at the moment, a unitary board with the primacy of shareholder value is effectively a one-party state. And by really taking the trend of stakeholder engagement to its logical conclusion, where you give all the stakeholders a stake, I think it's a much more resilient business. Now, when I say give everybody a stake, I don't mean a financial stake and you share out the, the profits. That's not what I mean at all. Stakeholders all have an engagement with the business and they seek a different benefit stream. The environment is very connected to manufacturing businesses. But what the environment wants is less 
less damage, thank you very much. It's not a matter of money at all. Staff want a livelihood, and that has some financial component, but it has many other things, attributes to it as well. True. And so what I mean is give a stake in the governance of the company rather than run the company for the shareholders and listen to these other stakeholders, actually give them all a real voice and some teeth in the governance of the company. And you will end up with a greater level of goodwill from all your other stakeholders than you could ever achieve if their interests are subordinated to those of, of the shareholders. Yep. We need the goodwill of the, the staff, the environment, the customers, the supply chain, the community, and all of those five stakeholder groups I defined by their benefit streams are given a voice in the running of the company, but all the dividends still go to the investors who provide the equity capital. But you need so, to have the, the, the right type of investors that believe in, in the long run. Otherwise you end up with compromise again. Yes. At the moment it's, you'd need investors who are taking a long view, but we believe that actually this builds a more profitable business. And ultimately this will be recognized by, by markets and by analysts yeah. and so on. So we think well, it's, about, got, uh, yeah, it's about bringing people together that believe in the same, the same purpose. Yeah, yes, yeah. absolutely. But in the long run, I think that investors will recognize this as a better investment. And that is why ultimately we would like to think this governance model will be able to attract capital better than a traditional model. Thank you very much for that. That's wise advice. <laughs> So, so what's next for you? What's your greatest aspiration for the next 12, 24 months? Oh, I suppose we, we want to get these cars, these cars in customers' hands at the moment. It's, it's only a couple of months off now, and it's very exciting after 20 years to think of customers out there in a river simple car. Exactly. Uh, so that's the, that's the, the near-term one. The second thing is to, to see our manufacturing facility operational. And... Yeah. Again, it's designed to be human scale rather than 300,000 cars a year from one of these plants. They will make about 5,000 cars a year. But we believe that's the optimal scale of plant if you're making your cars out of composite materials rather than steel. And, and when we expand, that's still the right scale. You just build more small plants. And each okay. one is a much more human level operation with a whole... It allows you we would still have a single hub that supports some of the economies of scale like purchasing and sales and marketing uh -huh. and so on. But there's no economic advantage from making the plants bigger. And if you keep them at this size, driven by the, the number of composite structures we can get through the tooling for, to make a car, we think that's about 5,000 cars a year can come through one set of tooling. And that defines the scale of the plant. By keeping it at that scale, you avoid a lot of the diseconomies of scale that people never talk about, but they're very real. We all recognize that big companies have a higher overhead rate to yeah, run exactly. than a small yeah, company. But there are lots of intangible human factors that affect productivity, for instance. And diseconomies of scale, we just always assume they're zero. And I think it's because they're very, very hard to quantify, but they're, not, they're absolutely not zero. And this model of plant allows us to capture the economies of scale in that hub that supports multiple plants, but avoid the diseconomies of scale. And each plant can make a different car and it gives you more flexibility. You can yeah. expand capacity in small increments, much better response to market requirements. And, and that, that level of flexibility 
is avoiding the diseconomy of scale of, called brittleness. I don't know how you quantify brittleness, but it's certainly a very big cost for, for businesses that are seeking to optimize very, very large scale. And so that, Interesting. that our first plant in operation is, I think, our next big, big milestone. Very well. So if there's anyone in the audience that, if there's anyone in the audience that could help, what would you ask? What's your big ask to them? Oh, gosh, we've got a gradually growing community. We started off with three crowdfunding rounds. It's been okay. hugely successful for us, A, in funding what we need to do, but also in marketing terms and building community. And we've got a, a very active community. We've got a, all sorts of design forum, for instance, for people to contribute to. And we really want to engage our customers in the whole development process of the company. What else do I think... So that's the, the near-term way in which people can get involved, but I don't really have any other big ask. What can that's fine. Be? Oh, there's endless opportunities for individual companies and relationships that we're building. So I dare say there are people out there who think, oh, we could do this or could do that with River Simple. We'd be delighted to hear from you. Okay. Yeah, this is part of the, of the podcast recording. Good. So where can people go and find out more about what you're doing as a technology company and say hi to you? Well, we have a website, riversimple.com. We also do have occasional open days. We are in the middle of Wales, so we're not very local to many people, but that's, we do show people around and have open days and presentations and so on. And then ultimately, <laughs> we will be deploying cars in a couple of years' time in different locations. We're only beginning, really, to target, work out which of the, the locations we're going to start in. We are, at the moment focused initially on the UK, but we are in discussion with other countries. We don't want to be exporting cars across the world. We believe that joint ventures in other countries, not just to build cars, but also design cars that are locally appropriate, both environmentally and culturally. Yeah. We need different cars for different places, just like you have different houses in different places. You need different cars. And the industry at the moment tests their cars in Death Valley and in the Arctic. But whoever drives from Death Valley exactly. to the Arctic? I mean, it's, it's inappropriate. The concept of the world car, which the industry makes, is really a, a one-size-fits-all solution that's designed for Western Europe, and then we flog it to the rest of the world because that's Smart. what we make. Yeah. But we, we want to develop vehicles that are environmentally and culturally sensitive, and they'll be yeah. much better for that local environment and culture if they're designed locally by local people. So yeah. we're looking to develop a distributed Mark. network of joint ventures. I really like that concept. And I agree with you that the over, well, another point of overhead cost, kind of testing for those extremes where only maybe 1% or even less is going to ever be yeah. exposed to that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But connecting with you, if people want to connect with you, is that LinkedIn or do you want to email? Oh, info at River Simple, and I myself am Hugo at River Simple, so people can get in touch with me. Um, Very good. Directly. And yeah, and apologies beforehand if I'm slow in responding. There's a bandwidth issue. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine you're doing There's something special team. here. There's only yeah, about you're doing something. Sorry? There's only about 20 people in the company at the moment, and we all wear many hats, and we're all very busy. So we will get back to you, but maybe not instantly. No, no, no. I completely agree with that. But keep up the good work. I really enjoyed this conversation, although it wasn't the kind of my usual one with, with software. 
entrepreneurs. I think this is close enough. It's at least it's in tech, but the concepts and the ideas in terms of thinking are really applicable well, to the audience that I work with. So thank you very much for that. Thank you very much, Tom. I've much enjoyed speaking to you. Likewise, Hugo. And I'm pretty sure my audience did as well. Talking about that, for those that are listening, please share your thoughts about what Hugo and I just discussed today. And if you liked it and got inspired by it, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thanks for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Hugo Powers, Chief Engineer and Founder of River Simple. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.